Hey, writers, join our first draft weekly writers club. We meet every Tuesday from 12 to 1 Eastern time. For more information, go to writingclassradio.com and click on the classes tab. This is Andrea, and you're listening to Writing Class Radio. Before we get started on this episode, I want to dedicate it to the people who have been dealing with Hurricane Harvey and Hurricane Irma. For the last two weeks, all of us in Florida have been totally preoccupied and some of us scared to death over this hurricane. And in the end, we totally lucked out. Um, That's not true for Cuba and the Virgin Islands and some of the Florida Keys. So we are thinking about you. Um, We're a little bit late getting this episode out because of what we've been dealing with. Some people still don't have power. And I want to say that I called our producer, Virginia, yesterday, and she was at the public library where they have power and um, internet and air conditioning. And she was putting the final edits on this episode. That's how much we love writing class radio. I also want to say that I have this huge appreciation for you, our listeners. I love that I have this podcast to come back to. I hope you enjoy it as much as we do. Thank you. Thank you for listening. This is Writing Class Radio. You'll hear true personal stories from the students in our class and learn a little bit about how to write your own stories. I'm Allison Langer, a student in the class. I'm Andrea Askowitz, the teacher of the class. Together we produce this podcast, which is equal parts heart and art. By heart, I mean the truth in a story. By art, I mean the craft of writing. Quick announcement. Our fall writing contest is officially on. The prompt is secret pleasure. Details on our website. Also, make writing a daily practice. We have a growing community of listeners who respond to our daily prompts and give feedback to each other. Join the party. Click on daily prompts on our website. It's awesome. Today we're talking about character. According to our guest, the poet, novelist, essayist, and teacher Tiffany Yannick, character is the most important element in storytelling because we're interested in human beings and in connecting with other human beings via our writing process, or as readers, in connecting with human beings via the reading process. Tiffany Yannick doesn't just dabble in writing. She's won tons of awards, including the 2016 Bocas Prize in Caribbean Poetry. She's one of the National Book Foundation's five under 35. She won a Pushcart Prize and a Fulbright Scholarship. She's awesome. When we talked, she laid out some of the ways character is developed in writing. I agree that character is the most important element in storytelling. For me, the person is what I care about most. On this episode, we weave Tiffany's thoughts on character in and out of stories by our students, who show us in different ways who they really are. American literature has really asked us to create character using uh, what we understand about psychology to create character. I think that's really valuable. Knowing what happened to your character when your character was five is a really important part of understanding where your character ends up at 25. Here's a story by student Nikki Post, who you may remember from episode 12, where she had an emotional hangover. In the story you're about to hear, Nikki explores her character through her genetic legacy.
In August, my father was sentenced to 16 years in prison. 16 years for multiple felonies, mostly counts for stalking, and violations of restraining orders, violations of probations, something about burglary, and more violations. Violations on top of repeated violations, rejected plea bargains, and insistence on his own innocence gained my father dislike in the courtroom, and most likely distrust from the judge who gave him the harshest and lengthiest sentence possible. For about a year, my dad had been insisting that he and Deb were just fighting. They weren't getting along, and he didn't know why she was being so difficult. I never met Deb, but I assumed she was the same, if not worse, than the others. The quality of women my father chose for companionship declined with the next, usually with a woman closer to my own age than his. I imagined that each woman matched his own level of sanity at the time, and as my father continued to deny his own mental illnesses and become slightly more unhinged, so did the women. With each relationship, or rather the decline of each relationship, more restraining orders were involved, more police, more trials. My dad had started to make a habit of asking my sister for money for his lawyer. I stopped asking why. After he was arrested, we realized that what my dad had called not getting along, Deb had called fear, and the police had called a felony. While my father was spending his first months in the Boulder County Jail awaiting trial, my sister and I sorted through the storage container that comprised his lifetime collection of things. My father has a lot of things, things he's very attached to, things he has continued to ask my sister about over collect calls from prison while forgetting to ask about her new job or to say thank you for paying off his credit cards. The storage container is a Tetris of the decades of his life, surfboards, records, thousands of records, a bed that he shipped back to Colorado from Hawaii from his first retirement, motorcycle parts, match collections, Hard Rock Cafe pin collections, that ankle-length black jacket that he wore in 1995, boxes of old bills, trash, and unopened junk mail, boxes of aerosol sprays that fortunately hadn't exploded in the humidity of the storage container in the however many years they had been stored there. Letters to old girlfriends. Photos of old girlfriends in positions you'd never hope to see of women who are sleeping with your father. My dad was already three months behind in rent on his dental lab at the time he was arrested. My sister went there first to sort out the remaining cases my dad had left undone. She made phone calls to dentists and delivered unfinished crowns. The lab was in disarray. There were piles of dirty clothes everywhere. He might have been sleeping there. A pair of old underwear sat on the counter, covered in chalk and dust from cleaning. Notes were scribbled on envelopes of overdue bills, on napkins. The numbers on the 2014 calendar were whited out, and new numbers matching 2015 were written over them. In red pen, there were notes scribbled onto calendar days like deadlines. If the bitch doesn't call me today, it's over, fucking cunt. He had gathered all his notes in a pile and typed them one by one into his stocking manifesto in chronological order. What she's doing at 10 a.m., at 11.35, at noon, what time she went to the gas station. Waiting in the parking lot, he wondered if she was in Target or King Supers and what could possibly be taking her so long. His scribbled notes now neatly typed and saved. In between locations and times of Deb's, mo of Deb's movements were more notes. That cunt. She's with him again, cheating bitch. 
One year later, my father was convicted, and the local newspaper, read by everyone in Boulder County, including my childhood friends, their parents, and presumably my elementary school teachers, had written an article about my father. Printed and posted, Longmont man convicted of stalking. His mugshot placed neatly between the text, his eyes looking to the side. I know those eyes, and I knew that look. Those eyes are the same color as mine, but now they're glossy. The wrinkles around his eyes were deeper. His cheeks were sunk. My father looked older than the last time I had seen him. The last time I spoke to my dad was two days before he got arrested. He had come to pick up a chair from my house and called me delusional, psychotic, for having memories that differed from the way that they had formed in his own mind, for not treating him as the forever victim. And now here he was, his eyes looking to the side, beyond the edges of the photo, eyes full of shame, not for felonies or prison, but for being misunderstood. The court wasn't seeing him as the victim either. He just wanted to talk to her. He just wanted to figure things out. How could it have gone this far when he just wanted to talk? I read that article on a Sunday morning in my Miami apartment after my mom sent me the link. I fluctuated between embarrassment, shame, anger, sadness, and back to embarrassment. My dad had rejected a plea bargain for three years in prison, including time already served. Twice. He expected to be released without punishment. He hadn't done anything wrong, he said over and over to my sister and any friend who he had not yet alienated, who was willing to post pleas of compassion on his Facebook wall, begging for letters to be written to the judge and bail money to be collected. He wanted to talk to her. He was returning Tupperware when he followed her, when his GPS ankle monitor alarmed. That was all. See her. Talk to her. And now, 16 years. Eligible for parole in eight. I made the conscious decision to distance myself from my father when I was 21 years old. I had just graduated from university. It wasn't the first time I was afraid of him, but it was the first time I was afraid of him and realized I didn't have to live with it anymore. He was upset with me and he screamed that he was coming over to my house before hanging up on me. I was shaking, my heart was heavy, my breath was short, it was in that moment I made the decision to re remove him from my life and myself from his. Every year after that, I saw him less, except during dad's season, those four months in a row when seeing my dad was obligatory. Father's Day in June, my birthday in July, my sister's in August, and my dad's in September. Dad's season became much easier when I was abroad. An email was enough. The more that I grew to resent my father, the more I tried not to be like him. When I would see something in myself that was similar, I would do the opposite. If I noticed I was being selfish, I would try to be more giving. I would try to make other people feel special. I would ask them questions and I would listen because that's not what my dad would do. My grandfather had depression and bipolar disorder. When my parents were getting divorced over 20 years ago, my mom recommended to my dad to seek counseling for what she assumed was the same mental illnesses as his father. The therapist told my the therapist my father supposedly saw told him he's fine. He's normal. He's a great person, of course. Maybe he saw a therapist, or maybe he manipulated one to say those things. He's good at that. My sister and I look nothing alike. I've always been told I have the post genes, my dad's side. While my sister has the olive skin, the round face, the darker features of my mom's family, I have the post long skinny legs. I have the blue eyes the same eyes as my dad, as my grandma. I have the post sense of adventure, sense of humor. 
But since my dad got arrested, I've spent a lot of time wondering whether his obsession, depression, and narcissism have also been passed on. Maybe I am as deluded as my dad told me that I am. If my dad had gotten help for his mental illnesses all these years, his life would be in a very different place now. If I have these post genes, I want to know and I want to be aware of it, so I don't end up as the same place as him 30 years from now. This story reveals who Nikki fears she'll become based on her past and her genetics. Oh, yeah. And Nikki's still really young, so wait until she has kids. Man, these dad traits are going to show up even more. It happens to me all the time with my mom. Does that happen to you? Totally. I think we all become our parents, even if we try our hardest not to be. I hear myself sound just like my mom when I'm screaming at my kids. And I fight it, but it's in me. It's just a part of my character. Like it or not, it's me. Tiffany points out that using psychological traits and past experiences are one way to write character. But that's not actually the only way. I mean, I think American literature has been caught up in that way. And I think um, uh, lots of other traditions have other ways that they make primary, not the psychological. So, for example, character depends on belief systems and stories that a community has been telling about itself. That affects the individual. People are made out of their belief system. So if you are uh, worshiping a certain version of God, that impacts you. That's part of your selfhood. That's part of how you interact with the world. It's not just what happened to you when you were five. It's also what you believe about what happened to you when you were five. So it's not just, well, my dad beat me when I was five. You know, what was the beating abusive or was the beating part of my faith? How you read it really depends on your belief systems. Next, we have a story by Toby Ash, a student in our class. Toby's cultural background and religious beliefs influence who she is in a major way. But first, here's a word from our sponsor. Here's Toby Ash with her story, Wheat. I was in line at the supermarket, flipping through a fashion magazine. There was an advertisement for hair color that showed a beautiful girl with very long blonde hair lying on a horse in a wheat field. The color was called wheat. The ad promised that its proprietary formula and conditioners would revive, restore, and resurrect. When I was 16 years old, my parents married me off to a man who was twice my age. They believed that they were doing the right thing for me because in the Hasidic community I grew up in, arranged marriages are normal and even desirable, especially in a case like mine. I was marrying up. Yanko came from a family with a higher pedigree, and everyone thought I was very lucky to have been given such a match. 
Both sets of parents believed that the marriage would cure Yankel of his issues. He was paranoid, pathologically, chemically addicted, violent, and an uncontrollable man. Not that anyone had told me that, and I'm pretty sure that my parents didn't know the extent of it. All I knew was that both families felt that my good command of English and clear way of seeing the world would be enough to turn him around and bring him back to the fold. He was next in line to become the Grand Rabbi, and this required a respectable, virtuous, moral, and upright wife. It's written in the Talmud that a good woman has the power to make a man good. So I believed it too. I tried the so-called easy things first, like getting him to go to synagogue three times a day, washed and ironed his suits and laid them out for him to put on. I made sure his Talmud was in his briefcase. I asked him about his studies. I tried to get him ready to take on the role of the Grand Rabbi, which meant that he had to study the Talmud daily. He needed to gain knowledge to impart to his followers. Then I worked on the harder things. I tried to get him to stop using drugs. I begged him multiple times to stop hanging out with a group of known street thugs, most of whom had been arrested multiple times. It's so hard to change oneself, and virtually impossible to change another person. All of my efforts antagonized him, and he took out his frustration on me with his words and his fists. I had been chosen to help this man, a man of impeccable lineage, assume the role he was born into. But I couldn't do it. I felt I was not a good enough woman. I was so ashamed. One year into the marriage, I began starving myself. I didn't feel I deserved the nurturing and the energy that food gave. This wasn't some rich white girl anorexia control thing. It was that I literally could not put food in my mouth. I was failing at my mission here on earth, and as such, I didn't deserve that delicious first sip of coffee, the warm slide of a slightly bloody steak, the salty sweet surprise, and the delight of a french fry. The months went by, and the flesh left my bones. I grew a coat of downy hair on my body. My fingertips turned a bluish color. I was a living ghost, a small colonel. I wasn't even scared. I wanted to die. Less than three months after I stopped eating, I weighed about 65 pounds. My heartbeat was irregular. Even my internal natural rhythm was off. If I happened to see myself in a mirror, I could not recognize myself. I was so pale. But no one said or did anything. Their silence was my assurance that I was doing the right thing. Then there was a fire in my apartment building. My husband had locked the door from the outside because he had wanted to control where I was at all times. I was trapped. A fireman found me and delivered me through a window. I was taken to the emergency room. The doctor there was gentle. He saw the bruises and the scars and he said, Who did this to you? I whispered, My husband. He said, You don't have to go back. In the Jewish world, God is sometimes played by a doctor. And God himself gave me permission to leave. I went home to my parents, debased, ashamed, terrified, and also, for the first time in a very long time, hungry. I learned to eat again with nourishing foods that built me up. Every spoonful of pudding, every piece of toast, every soft scrambled egg was my way of telling my body, it's okay. I learned to drive, 
I went to college. I got a job. I found a man to love. I began to grow, little by little. That tiny, imperceptible kernel had been inside of me, its tip finely honed, extra sharp to push its way through the heavy layer of dirt. I finished unloading my grocery cart, milk, eggs, pasta, tomato sauce, and juice. I told the clerk, Wait just a second, I forgot something, and ran to the health and beauty aisle and picked up paradise, the color of wheat. Amazing how Toby believed she could change this man if she were good enough. Religion is so crazy. Okay, trying to change a man is not religion specific. I should know that. That's so true. (laughs) But it was for her. I mean, it was written in the Talmud. Yeah. No, it's clear how religion has shaped her for sure. I, I mean, I personally, I don't think religion shaped me. Has it shaped you? I think it has. People always ask me, are you from New York? Which I really think means, are you Jewish? And I am, even though, like, I'm barely... You're from New York. Oh, no, no. I'm not from New York, but I am Jewish. But I'm barely Jewish. I'm, like, Jewish-ish. I mean, you know, I went to the high holiday services, like, that's it. Culturally, I'm Jewish. And I don't even think I'm Jewish. I don't even feel Jewish until I look in the mirror. And then I'm like, whoa, Haba Nagila. Yeah, that doesn't happen to me. That's because you look totally waspy. Yeah, maybe. Oh, that's a really good transition because Tiffany also talks about how physicality, like how what we look like really informs our character. And basically like how I look, like the the curly hair, the glasses, the are you from New York look, that has totally informed how I am in the world. Okay, when I was in grad school, I had this moment. I was in my 20s. I was like, I'm getting serious. I'm going to try to change the world. And I took this class, Women in the Law. And we were talking about topics that we were going to explore. And one person said, like, pay equity. Another person said, um, rape, you know, serious shit. And I said, I'm going to try prostitution. And the whole class, like, busted out laughing. And I was like, why? Why is that funny? And I had a girlfriend at the time who was like, everything you say comes out funny because of your hair. You can't come across serious. You look crazy. You look funny. I mean, maybe I shouldn't have said, I want to try prostitution. Maybe I should have said, I'll write about prostitution. But I said it like that. And everyone laughed. Her theory was that I had a curly hair personality. And I kind of think she's right. And I think you have a blonde hair personality. So you're a curly haired woman. And I'm a blonde, blue-eyed, sometimes curly, sometimes straight-haired woman. Oh, I'd like to know about that. So when you walk around in the world with straight hair, is it different than when you're walking around the world in curly hair? Yes. How? Oh, my God. Yeah. Well, I... Today, it's a little different than it was maybe a couple of years ago. I think like when I blew my hair dry straight, I felt prettier and more accepted at the country club, like that whole look. Like I could walk into a room with perfectly blow dried straight hair and everyone's going to be like, wow, she's so pretty. You so know, are felt- you saying you would get free drinks? Like blow dried hair got you free drinks? Is that what you're saying? Is all you care about drinks? <laughs> What's your real question My here? question is, does straight blonde hair afford you free shit in the world? I don't know about the free shit thing. I sometimes feel like youth and boobs and body get you more free shit than blonde hair. But I do think I walk in and I feel good about myself. 
I feel like sometimes a straight hair is a facade because my natural hair is wavy curly. So I feel like when I'm putting on the mask, it's more a mask of beauty and I want to portray a beautiful woman. But when I have my hair just curly natural, I feel freer. I feel like I'm being more real. And so I don't always feel as pretty, but I feel real. And that's more important to me now. That's that's fascinating. I love it. And that's what Tiffany said. How we look impacts our selfhood, which means like how we act in the world. Past experiences, belief systems, cultural background, what you inherit from your parents, all these things create your character. All of these things create your personality. Tiffany says that in order to write well about yourself, about your character, in ways that are truly believable, you have to know yourself really well. This is actually extremely hard for the memoirist because if, you're, if the character is yourself, in some ways that's the most mysterious thing to us. That's a thing that's constantly changing. It's a thing that we maybe put even more layers of delusion on top of, of the self. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's, okay. there's tons of self-delusion that goes on for us to exist in the world. And um, how can you peel those layers off? Because you must if you're going to write a, a good memoir. So we have to dig deep. I think it's really, really important for us to get to know our characters. In class, to get our students to reveal who they really are, we had them respond to the prompt, no one wants to marry me because. It's a fun one, right? All right, let's do it. Here's Nosa Rivera reading her response. You may remember Nosa from episode 29. She wrote about being hard of hearing in a hearing world. No one will ever marry me because I'm so complicated. I will cook only when I don't have money to buy food. If the kitchen has been cleaned by someone other than me, and if whatever meat my family wants to eat has been defrosted before I get home, I also refuse to come home from work and cater to their needs to be heard or taken care of and walk into the living room where my computer waits for me to engage in long hours of conversations with Google and Scrivener. As I drove to class, all I thought about was how my hearing aids bother me, how my clothes itch against my skin, my glasses are too loose on my head, my hair is a mess, my car is full of coffee mugs, ripped mail, I need gas, I'm late for class. Now that I think about all the reasons why someone wouldn't marry me, I feel bad for my husband. (laughs) (laughs) This narrator knows herself. Next is our producer and also a student in the class, Virginia Laura. No one will ever marry me because I'm such a bad communicator, and it takes me so long to say what I feel deep down that I don't know when we would ever get to the marriage conversation. I don't know why I'm so bad at talking about my feelings, since I know with my head how important talking about feelings is. I joke with my friends that it's as if I had suffered the worst heartbreak in the history of the universe, and I'm now jaded with so many walls up. But I haven't, I don't think so. Um, I don't know why then. But I can feel it. This makes me worry that what I say doesn't actually reflect what I'm feeling if I don't say it properly. So then I just don't say anything and I just listen. This is actually one of the reasons I loved the most recent relationship I had. He and I were so different. He spoke his mind without worrying or second guessing himself. Before him, I'd never been as close physically or or emotionally 
with someone so different from me. Recently, we had dinner. The reason we broke up is because he moved back to where he came from to pursue his dream job. Good for him. I wasn't going to pick up and move for him. We weren't there yet. Um, he was in town. We had dinner and talked about how at the end of our first date, he knew he liked me but had no idea whether or not I was into him. He said he could not read me at all. That's it. I even love that that line is in there. This prompt response is a great example of the narrator knowing herself. Virginia knows she's bad at communicating. But I think this story is also an example of what Tiffany said, that we delude ourselves to be able to exist in the world. I'm not a therapist, but I know that when this narrator was nine, she lost her mom. I'd say she did suffer the worst heartbreak in the universe. I want her to come back to that question, did I suffer the worst heartbreak? And then maybe she'll be able to make sense of her behavior in romantic relationships. There's so much more to this story. Thank you for listening. And thank you, Tiffany Yannick, for being on our show. If you love this podcast, please rate us on Apple Podcasts. It really matters. Ratings help people find us. Then go to our website and hit the support us button because any amount will keep this podcast going. Oh, I want to say that I read our listener reviews on Apple Podcasts, and they're awesome. We have 59, and I don't even know those people. You swear? I swear! I don't even know them. (laughs) And also, not only does it help people when you respond, it helps people find us. It also helps us keep on. Yeah, keep on recording. Keeping on. If you have a business or startup, let Andrea help you tell that story. She'll come to your office and teach your employees how to better articulate why they do what they do. Because stories sell. And I'm for hire too. I'll come to your retreat and help guests write through their shit so they can live free. Writing Class Radio is produced by Virginia Laura, Misha Morell, Andrea Askwitz, and me, Allison Langer. Theme music by Ari Herstand. Additional music by Blue Jay, Adriel Roshansky, Wineland, and Pottington Bear. Writing Class Radio is sponsored by and recorded at the University of Miami School of Communication. This episode is sponsored by the Sanibel Island Writers Conference, November 2nd through the 5th, 2017. Sign up today. There's more writing class on our website, Twitter, and Facebook. Study the stories we study and listen to our craft talks. Write on our daily prompt page or record what you wrote with the voice memo on your cell phone and email it to us at info at writingclassradio.com. And enter our writing contest. The prompt is Secret Pleasures. Details on our website. There's no better way to understand ourselves and each other than by writing and sharing our stories. Everyone has a story. What's yours? I went to grad school. This is before I was even gray. And um, and I had... Are you bored? No. I'm just taking a breath. Allison's already closing her eyes. Okay. We're cutting this part. This yeah. is so boring. I'm Jeff Woods, and I'm shining a light on music and the rock stars who make it. He just was one of those people. He, he stood out. He was a magic guy. He really was a magic guy. All, we all have force. He had the same amount of force as we all had. This was before Led Zeppelin. Robert was full on. I mean, he was Led Zeppelin without the band behind him. He had the hair, the jeans, the whole thing, you know. And he was amazing. The Records and Rockstars podcast heard around the world and yours to hear wherever you get podcasts. All the episodes from JeffWoodsRadio.com.